This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and Spectator contributor and political commentator Patrick O'Flynn. So Isabel, today was meant to be the day that Rishi Sunak had hoped to present his Northern Ireland protocol plans to Cabinet. That hasn't happened and not only is that not happening, it does look like the party is splitting again on Brexit. Tell us about what's going on. Yeah, so when the readout from Cabinet came round from Downing Street this afternoon, early this afternoon, it did not have the uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol in it in terms of uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, plan at one point had been that he was going to present the agreement on changing the protocol to Cabinet. Instead, Rishi Sunak told Cabinet that intensive negotiations with the EU continue on resolving the issues caused by the way the protocol was being enforced. So the split in the party is largely over the legislation that Boris Johnson introduced on the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which a number of senior figures, obviously including Boris Johnson, but uh, Sarah Braverman, the Home Secretary, being, I think, the the key figure here, have warned against Rishi Sunak junking. That had been his plan to do that. So there's now a, a rearguard action against that. And you had uh, Suella Braverman making clear that she felt that the freedoms within that legislation were what would resolve this issue. That's something that's uh, that's disputed by a number of those involved in the talks. We've got the Foreign Secretary having talks uh, this afternoon with Mara Shevkovic, the European Commission Vice President, and they are still trying to resolve outstanding issues. There's also, connected to the Northern Ireland Protocol, bill dispute between Rishi Sunak and his MPs is also an argument over whether he needs the backing of the DUP for any agreement to go ahead or whether he can say to them, well, take it or leave it. You'll have to explain to your voters in fresh stormant elections why you're not going back into the executive and why you're not accepting something that we've worked really hard to try to to hammer out what was always going to be a compromise on. And Obviously, the European Research Group, large chunk of the Conservative Party, very, very close to the DUP, um, shared or has shared some some of its sort of infrastructure at, at points over the past few years. And their argument is that the Prime Minister should proceed with the backing of the DUP, uh, whereas there are others who are saying that, that actually they, they've got different political plows to fire now. Mm-hmm. Patrick, now there are some defenders of Rishi Sunak's approach of leaving that bill. For example, former Justice Secretary Robert Buckland has written today that actually there's no legal defence for keeping that bill going anymore. But would you disagree with that in the sense that it's actually still a very good instrument to keep on hand and that Rishi Sunak would be shooting himself in the foot? Or as some Brexiteers have said, using a Theresa May approach if he were to junk that bill? Uh, Yes, I tend to take that latter view, that it would be seen, I think, rightly as a unilateral act of political disarmament to dump that bill. 
even simultaneously with an agreement being reached with the European Commission because Brexiteers might hope that whatever agreement is reached might not necessarily be the final agreement if subsequent problems came up. Having that bill as an act on the statute book giving legal cover to walk away, on the one hand, could resolve things via the UK just walking away from the protocol. On the other hand, could help resolve things by being massively helpful in having leverage uh, in negotiations. And I think the the parallel with Theresa May is politically very perilous for Mm. Rishi Sunak because Theresa May, when the Brexit negotiations first opened, gave the EU everything they wanted on the the sequencing of the issues around the divorce bill, EU citizens' rights and Northern Ireland, and on Northern Ireland in particular, signed up to this idea that it was the UK's responsibility not to do anything that might lead the EU to think it needed to impose a hard border. So this idea, uh, that contrasted obviously with Boris Johnson and David Frost bulletagate approach, which I think for all the imperfections of, of the deals we reached was nonetheless seen to have actually been much more effective at securing EU concessions. So I think the politics are a bit of a nightmare for Rishi Sunak, particularly because I thought the Tory poll rating might have bottomed out by now and there'd be signs of some modest recovery, a sort of calmness premium. But the one awkward thing about that is it hasn't actually happened. Mm. And I think there was a worse poll, uh, Redfield and Wilton on on Monday, yesterday, showing a Tory racing down at 24% and Labour over 50 So he's politically quite weak, even though he seems to be doing some sensible, credible, authoritative things. And Patrick, I just want to get your opinion on the, on the interventions that his predecessors like Boris Johnson and also Liz Truss are making, and also Jacob Rees-Mogg now coming back. It always mm. does feel like Theresa May years in more ways than one. What do you make of that? Do you think that that's helpful interventions or should some previous characters just kind of pipe down a little bit? Uh, Well, I I thought it was quite fun of Penny Mordaunt to try and interpret Boris Johnson's intervention as helpful by basically telling the EU, we've got this guy back on his shoulder, you know, this is the way it's going if you don't give more ground. But I don't think that was the motivation of Boris Johnson's intervention. Clearly, he is still someone with huge ambitions for what he believes he can uh, can contribute to the country's politics. I think Liz Truss, from memory as well, was quite instrumental in launching Mm -hmm. the protocol bill as a strategy to, you know, put the thumbscrews on the EU. I think it would be an astonishing piece of statecraft by Rishi Sunak if he could get to the end of the week having agreed a new deal which would allow him to dump the protocol bill in the Lords and square off the DUP and the ERG. Mm. It looks like to me a, a precipice that's too narrow to walk along and not fall off. It's about is one way forward for Rishi Sunak just for the government to keep pushing the bill through. But if it meets opposition from other quarters, for example, in the House of Lords or in the House of Commons, then Rishi Sunak can throw his hands up and say, well, weren't me, Gov? Yeah, that is a, a possibility that it was always expected that peers were going to have a, a real go at this legislation. And what then happens if peers uh, heavily amend legislation, they don't. They, I mean, they won't vote against legislation that's been introduced in, in the Commons. That's not really... It's not really something that the Lords can do, but they can gut it via amendments. And what it then does is go back down to the Commons for something that's known as ping pong in parliamentary jargon, uh, which is when, or consideration of Lords amendments, which is when the Commons and the Lords uh, send the legislation back and forward trying to agree changes. At that stage, 
Rishi Sunak would have to take a position on the amendments made by peers. So it would be quite difficult for him, I think, to say nothing to do with me, Gov, unless he just like suddenly lost the phone number of his chief whip for 24 hours, which, you know, stranger things have happened. I mean, we have had key votes where ministers have ended up lost in rooms in the past uh, decade. So that's possible. But I I think I don't think it would be considered plausible by uh, a large part of his party. Mm-hmm. And Patrick, the other big story in town today is about the fate of Kate Forbes, the frontrunner at the moment for the SNP's uh, leadership, or well, at least the frontrunner earlier this week. But I don't know if she will be for much longer because over the last 24 hours, she's had a lot of questioning over her socially conservative views, whether it's on gay marriage or uh, sex outside marriage. What do you make of all of these lines of question? Do you think that her candidacy is doomed? Well, I think the conventional reading is that it's doomed, that she should even withdraw, uh, that her views are so horrific that all decent people in Scotland will throw up their hands, you know, uh, about them. I I personally think that's all wrong. I think Christianity isn't dead in Scotland and there's some quite, you know, uh, heavy scriptural, scripture observing branches of it. And there's also... Uh, sort of large element of socially conservative opinion, which might not personally be against gay marriage or be against bringing children into the world outside marriage, but would respect the honesty and openness of a Christian politician who says, look, this is what the beliefs of of my faith are and Mm -hmm. and the roots of the beliefs in my faith. She's not, um, Kate Forbes is not proposing to bring in a law scrapping gay marriage and she's not proposing to bring in a law making it illegal to have children outside wedlock. What she is clearly indicating is on the trans issue, she is minded not to get into a legal fight with Rishi Sunak and Westminster. Mm -hmm. And had she been around and not on maternity leave, she would have voted against the gender recognition reform. And I think that places her in a very powerful position with Scottish public opinion in general. And I think the broad mass of Scottish public opinion will find her honesty refreshing. And like, here is a politician who's a bit different, Mm. uh, speaks outside the Beltway, whatever they call the Beltway uh, around Holyrood. Uh, And I think um, it's all to play for. I I mean, I don't know, uh, perhaps Isabel knows better than me what the characteristics of the SNP still large party membership is, but I'm, I'm quite sure a large element of it would share her views, at least on the trans issue. Isabel? Yeah, it's really interesting. Speaking from Scotland, as I like to say, whenever I am working from home uh, rather than down in Westminster, it, it, Patrick's absolutely right that it, it's not as though religion is is dead up here, or indeed, you know, strict observance of, of faith. And I think there's a an issue which Patrick. Uh, knows well from his time working with UKIP of the sort of the Westminster bubble effect uh, affects Holyrood as well, where you have, you know, very liberal cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow, where the sort of political culture is based. And then the rest of the country, which can actually be quite different to to the sort of metropolitan centres. So I think that's something that, that all political parties in all parts of the UK struggle with. And the SNP certainly isn't immune to that. The the other, the, the, the interesting thing about the membership is they, I mean, it is quite a young membership. And so they are, and this is a concern of, of some of the people who briefly supported Kate Forbes, is that they just won't deliver leaflets for her um, because they fundamentally disagree with what she thinks about gay marriage, about relationships and so on. But as Patrick says, she is being honest 
about her views and they are not I mean that you know they are the strict end of Christianity but they're not they're not a total shock and to to a certain extent I think it's much better that she is just answering the questions directly rather than producing some kind of politician's answer where she doesn't want to upset anyone because there are lots of people in Scotland and I'm not just talking about Christians but but Muslims as well who do hold these views on children uh, being born within marriage rather than outside of wedlock and so on and so she she's not preaching to a country that that is entirely uh, opposed to her views so I think it is a really interesting case in how far a political party is prepared to let one of its leaders go in terms of their personal beliefs. I think Forbes is different to, say, Tim Farron, in that Tim Farron well, was very bad at answering questions and did end up sort of dodging but continually talking about um, gay sex throughout his tenure as, as Lib Dem leader. But he believes that he shouldn't legislate to make people live as Christians when they're not, whereas she's from a tradition of Christianity that's much more about saying, well, this is what God says is good for you and therefore you should legislate to give people the lives that, that God says is good and it would be harmful to allow them to, you know, have a gay marriage, for instance, so that there is a difference there. But she's not, as Patrick says, proposing to suddenly ban having children outside of wedlock. And um, I think her opponents should be mindful of that in their response to her, because there's a lot of people outside of the political bubble who will have more sympathy than seems. Isabel and Patrick, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening.